Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. This time, I'm surrounded by print-on-demand stuff that I've been buying from the internet. It might not have the thrill of the hunt, but it's much cheaper than second-hand purchases on eBay. On my right is the great library of RPGs, my grognard files. I've been meaning to get this one off the shelf for a while. On my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. Now, last time, the shrine let me down. It made an erroneous connection to the satanic rites of Dracula, which is a completely different film, out a year later than Dracula AD 1972. I am sincerely sorry. I put it down to Lemsip affecting my interpretation of the results, but I've added a new battery as a belts and braces approach. I apologise for the malfunction. So, let's give it a tap. Ah yes, now we're on safer ground, as we star-crash to Earth, as the eternal champion has appeared once again as Stellar Star. This time, we're looking at Star Frontiers, in a two-part episode. Released by TSR in 1982, it was a colourful box set with basic and expanded rules, dice, a fold-out map and counters. It was later revised and released as Alpha Dawn with a companion spaceship game, Nighthawks. Aimed at a younger audience than some of the other product lines, It was well supported by some of the best games designers around at the time, contributing sophisticated adventures. In the second part, we'll look at some of those modules in a bit more detail. If you've read Game Wizards by John Peterson, you'll know that this was a turbulent time for TSR. The Gygax era was coming to an end in a mire of lawsuits, poor management decisions and Hollywood indulgences. A new era was beginning that would prove no less turbulent. The post-Gygax TSR from the mid-80s through to the 1990s and a point where it was bought out by Wizards of the Coast is covered in Slaying the Dragon, a secret history of Dungeons & Dragons by Ben Riggs. He's joining me in the Zoom of role-playing rambling to talk about the company at the time of Star Frontier's release and to help me on a journey of discovery, trying to find out what happened in RPGs in the 1990s while I wasn't playing. Daily Dwarf returns in this episode. White Dwarf may not have given the game any coverage, but TSI UK magazine, Imagine, did. And for this episode, Daily Dwarf becomes Intermittent Imagine, in an essay, what he wrote, and I'll read. Judge Blythe and I have struggled to get together this month, but we managed to squeeze in a couple of encounters to reflect on Star Frontiers and our attitudes towards science fiction gaming in general. 
What really makes Star Frontier sing as an RPG is its setting. And I'm going to share some of the history blurb here to get you in the mood. Near the centre of the great spiral galaxy, where stars are much closer together than Earth's sun and its neighbours, humans developed. They were not identical to the humans of Earth, but they were not very different either. When these humans discovered that waves of subspace Pytrachian particles could cross interstellar space faster than light, they realised that they'd found the link to the stars. A radio message that would have taken years to travel between the stars could be sent within subspace communicators in months, even weeks. The humans started broadcasting news of themselves to the neighbouring stars and soon found that they were not alone. The humans made contact with an inventive species of insect-like creatures called the Vrusk, who had developed limited space travel decades earlier. One of the Vrusk's mining colonies had already contacted another species, the shape-changing Dralocytes. The two alien species had been exchanging information for several years. The Vrusk and the Dralocytes were pleased to learn of each other. They sent a wealth of scientific information to the humans. Using this new knowledge, the industrious humans quickly developed interstellar starships. The three alien species met in a large area of space known as the Frontier. There, they also discovered the Yazarian, tall, maned humanoids. Soon, the settled worlds of the frontier became melting pots for the four different aliens with dazzling mixtures of architecture and cultures. To supply the needs of these worlds, the first interstellar company, the Pangalectic Corporation, was formed. It developed interests everywhere, from scientific research to farming to spaceship building. The PGC even created its own language, the Pan-Galactic, which soon became the most common language of all peoples of the frontier worlds. Many large companies, which started later, were modelled on the PGC, but none approached the size or power of the Pan-Galactic Corporation. Then the Sathar appeared. No one knows where they came from or why, they attacked and destroyed lonely systems on the edge of the explored space. Slowly inward, survivors described the Sathars as worm-like creatures eight to four metres long. That was all that was known about them, because they would rather kill themselves than be captured. As the danger increased, the humans, Dralocytes, the Vrusks, the Azarians formed the United Planetary Federation, UPF to defend their worlds. The mysterious Sathar were forced back, but before long they returned in a more sinister form. The Sathar had learned that they could not beat the UPF in battle. Instead, they began hiring Yazarian, human, Dralocyte and Vrusk agents to sabotage interstellar trade and interfere with local governments. The UPF created the Star Law Rangers, an interstellar police force, to track the Sathar's agents from planet to planet and fight them on their own terms. 
but despite the efforts of the rangers, the sly Sathar agents have become the most dangerous threat ever to face the United Planetary Federation and the Frontier Corporations. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Buckle up! Welcome to the Zoom of Role Playing Rambling. I'm joined by podcaster and writer of Slaying the Dragon, a secret history of Dungeons and Dragons, Ben Riggs. Hello there, Ben. Hello. Great to be here. You you have a wonderful on-air voice. And um, where in the world are you beaming from, uh, Ben, right now? Exotic Milwaukee, Wisconsin, along the frigid shores of Lake Michigan. It's a, there's about eight inches of snow on the ground, and I don't think I've seen the sun in six weeks. So you live right in the heart of the origin story, then? Yeah. Lake Geneva is about 45 minutes down the road, and it, it certainly is uh, one of the competitive competitive advantages I brought to the project is, you know, I know the area. A lot of people are still here, and it, it, it was nice to be able to tell what is, for me at least, a local story um, that's never been told before, rightfully, uh, correctly, in my opinion. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but I would like to know a little bit more about you as a gamer. So how did you start in gaming? And, uh, you know, just give a bit of a background of who you were playing with. My first game was second edition AD&D, but, uh, and I bought a bunch of books, but I didn't play much of it, actually. Um, for, for me, it was very much making the same elven blade singer that dual wielded longswords again and again and again, dreaming that I'm going to be playing someday, and then it never quite happened. Um, then I turned 14, went off to high school. And I found people playing riffs. I found people playing vampire. Um, and I kind of went off on a, on a tangent for a while. And, and D&D has never been my my main jam. I, and I, I think that actually kind of works out well because I can certainly speak D&D and I do play D&D and I have played D&D. Uh, but it was always like you know, second or third game for me. Um, so high school was mostly World of Darkness games. Then I found Call of Cthulhu and fell in love with Call of Cthulhu. Um, and I, I ran down that rabbit hole for many years. I came back for third edition, played a little bit of that. And then I really didn't come back again until fifth edition. I, w- I was very much out of the country for about three or four years. And that, that just made it hard to to play or run or do anything interesting with gaming. Uh, so then I got back just for the tail end of third edition and the beginning of Pathfinder. And I played some Pathfinder, played some third edition, but I, I really then also played a ton of Legend of the Five Rings. So while role-playing games are definitely my primary hobby, D&D has always been a, a second or third tier game for me because um, combat's never been the most interesting thing, in my opinion, because combat so often ends with the players winning and almost always they know they're going to win. So I'm like, oh, this, this just feels kind of boring. You know, uh, politics and horror, I thought were much more interesting and relationships I thought were much more interesting. Although I just started running uh, uh, a th- third edition campaign last week theoretically for a second volume of this history i'm like okay well if i'm going to write about third edition i better play a ton of third edition because second edition was my my version of DD, so i felt very comfortable with it um but third edition i i'm like okay i gotta know this front back and center so we're just gonna go run it uh so yeah i guess that's where i am now i've played played a lot of everything never been a huge D guy and i'm currently running third ed 
in a world of fifth edition players. That's really interesting because uh, I was telling you off mic that um, we actually stopped playing um, around, uh, well, the late 80s and started playing again in uh, 2010. And like you, uh, D&D was never our game. We were always um, KMCM fanboys who were playing RuneQuest and um, uh, Call of Cthulhu. So this D&D story, we kind of missed out on uh, some of this. So that's what I found fascinating about reading your book, actually. It was like a, a journey of discovery. What what is it about the TSR story that is so compelling and interesting? For, for me, it was just that it, uh, it was the book that demanded I write it. it. It started out as an article, then it became three articles, and then I was like, it'll be a 10,000-word PDF that I'll kickstart, and 100,000 words later, you know, it's in bookstores. But I, I just kept going and finding out more stuff that I didn't know that I thought was really interesting. So I just I just kept writing. So it, it, it's funny because I was like, yeah, man, there can't, there, there can't be a market for this. This is so nerdy. People are going to say they already know this story. But I, I just kind of ignored it and kept writing and figured that the, the work would find a space for itself. And it certainly seems to have done so. But uh, it's funny because <laughs> when I sat down, I was not like, this is it. This is the book that's going to be 100,000 words long and I can go to a bookstore and buy it. I, I didn't think it was going to be that, but here we are. We've read it as part of our book club. So the podcast has a, a monthly book club and uh, we read it hot on the heels of Game Wizards, which is John Peterson's story. You, you take a very Perfect different... timing. Yeah. You, you, t- you took a, uh, a very different approach because in John's book, he looks at primary sources, amateur press of the day or... Uh, court transcripts you take a very different approach haven't you actually spoken to people well i think that john would tell you he discovered people lie and he's he's not wrong (laughs) (laughs) but and the the other advantage he has is a lot of those primary documents are, are out there and available for purchase and he is you know kind of accumulating a grand collection of primary source D&D documents, mostly surrounding that period. Like he, he was very generous and helped me out with a few things. Because again, like the, the 90s, which is where my primary focus was, isn't really his focus. And again, I have nothing but kind things to say about him as a uh, writer and fellow historian. This really started with talking to people and getting their stories. But then again, as I went along, I found more and more, again, primary source documents to confirm things. It's certainly not an oral history, but you're right that that's where it, it all started with uh, probably Jim Louder uh, of the TSR book department going out for coffee with him week after week after week and recording it as he's like, let me tell you everything that went down. I'm going to give you the straight dope. Here's where everything went wrong. And just just getting him uh, uh, passionately speaking to the events of the day. And that was probably the the initial spine of the book. So yeah, I wouldn't call it an oral history, but you certainly get personalities and conflicts and stories. But again, I I wanted to emphasize, I still do confirm it with primary source documents. And I really wish I got Lorraine Williams to talk to me because that to me is the great missing piece of the book is hearing Lorraine's defense of her decisions. And again, I'm in 20 years, someone else will come along, write another history. They'll have access to primary source documents. They'll tell, they'll point out everything I did wrong and, and human knowledge will move forward and it'll be a wonderful thing. 
Well, I think um, the advantage that it has is that it does bring the story alive because you get a feel for some of those uh, personalities. And the other thing that uh, you do is track the sales data and um, how the ups and downs and fortunes of the company, um, kind of a roller coaster ride, isn't it? Um, from those early years to... Gary Gygax leaving and uh, Lorraine Williams taking over and and, and you can kind of track that, that that story. Yeah, I mean, one of the, again, as a second edition D&D fan, I was four or five years old when D&D was at its peak. I had no idea that it was at its peak at that, at, at its, at that time. But again, the early 80s was likely the cultural peak of Dungeons and Dragons probably until sometime in the last seven years. It's likely that now uh, D&D is more popular than it was then. But until Wizards of the Coast releases some sales data, uh, that's going to be hard to prove. They claim 55 million people have experienced the game, whatever precisely that means. And I would guesstimate with maybe 3 million people had played the game by 1999. And again, that doesn't mean there's 3 million hardcore gamers. It means that you've had 3 million people at some point sit down and play a game of D&D. And that's, that's the loosest, like, you know, most low confidence number that I, that I can generate, but it's, it's a number. So like, if you take those two things in, in consideration, they're claiming that D&D has grown many times over uh, since 1999, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Again, these numbers are part made up by me in marketing departments, again, with low confidence by me. But yeah, the early 80s uh, were, were clearly the peak of D&D before the fifth edition flowering. The other thing I like to point out to people that, you know, you don't necessarily think to be true, but basic Dungeons and Dragons was selling better at some points than advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Even Gary Gygax at one point was defending AD&D in Dragon being like, we're not abandoning AD&D. AD&D is going to be uh, supported. And I think we all think of AD&D now as the main trunk of Dungeons and Dragons, but it's it it was not necessarily so in the sales data. Uh, and again, I would assume the reason they didn't support Dungeons and Dragons was because both Arneson and Gygax should get royalties from any Dungeons and Dragons per sales. Uh, so the company did not want to make Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and and that early story, coming back to the point of primary sources and Gary Gygax, you point out that he is an unreliable narrator in the story of uh, D&D. Do you just want to talk through that and uh, some of the crises that he fended off at the time? Uh, 2003, 2004, where Gary Gygax gave uh, what was billed as the ultimate interview to an Italian journalist online. And... The journalist asked like all the important questions and Gary got to have his say. And Gary tells this story of, of how TSR is ruined by his partners, the Bloom brothers, and he's powerless to do anything about it. And they're, you know, uh, fools and idiots and yet Machiavellian enough to keep him out of power. And uh, yet, if you go back to primary sources, and again, I want to point out John Peterson really did the foundational work in this. If you go back to the primary sources, every dumb decision that Gygax is later like, the Blooms did it, it wasn't me. He's on the record defending, talking about how it's a great idea. Like they bought a needlepoint company because uh, Bloom relatives were involved in it. 
And Gary Gygax defended it in the newspapers as, hey, you know, the the, the hobby needlepoint market is bigger than the role-playing game market. So this is a great purchase. So it really is a like, I, I've had some people tell me they don't like my book because they don't want to know bad things about Gary Gygax. And I'm like, well, come on, come on, guys. Like, you know, I'm not, he didn't like commit any crimes. Like, you know, he just wasn't totally honest. He, he burnished, he over burnished his reputation. He was prideful. You know, that's not a huge deal. I don't think he still made a, made a great game. That's what we're all going to remember him for. The Bloom brothers, one of them has passed away and one of them does not want to talk about TSR. So, so they weren't defending themselves. So Gary could really say whatever he wanted to say. And uh, we all took it as gospel until John Peterson went and did a little bit more research for us. 1983 in particular is a crunch point. And we're looking at uh, Star Frontiers as part of this episode. Yeah. And um, I suppose it was uh, another period in the uh, long storied history where there's a proliferation of product and uh, saturation. So uh, how do all those uh, games uh, fit in that, in that period? The most interesting Star Frontier story, I think, is the Lawrence Schick story. And you, I think it was in Game Wizards. Lawrence Schick was working on Star Frontiers. And at the time, TSR gave royalties to its game writers. So if you, you know, the, like the pay wasn't great. Like he started at TSR making whatever minimum wage was in like 1978 in Wisconsin. And so it's some miserably low wage, but the royalties were what could move you into the middle or even upper middle class. And he's working on Star Frontiers. He's like, this is going to be a big hit. Here it is. It's a sci-fi game from TSR, makers of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, the royalty on this is what's going to move me into the middle class. And uh, as they're nearing completion of Star Frontiers, it comes down that there's going to be no more royalties. Nobody's going to get royalties anymore. Here's a pay bump, uh, but no more royalties. And it, it drives Lawrence Schick from the company uh, because he, he's so upset about this. And, you know, when I think about role-playing game designers today, man, like that's the number one thing that I would say could fix some of the economic problems with the role-playing game industry at the Watsy level. So I, I have it on, I've been told that sales of fifth edition player's handbook are in excess of 2.5 million copies. If the primary writers on that had a royalty, you know, that, that mm. I can't imagine it wouldn't have generated hundreds of thousands of dollars each for those primary writers over the last, you know, what is it? Nine years. When, again, when you think about the, the the terrible pay at a lot of these RPG companies, that is the thing that I would like to see come along to fix it. And that is one of the things that I take away from that story of Star Frontiers is that that moment when you had royalties jerked away from the RPG designers was a was a minor economic disaster that we're still dealing with. It's it's why I like uh, so many of the fiction writers for TSR have have done better than the role-playing game designers, you know, at GaryCon every year, I shouldn't say every year, but often Margaret Weiss will, will throw a party at GaryCon on Saturday night, you know, and it's an open bar and she pays, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the game, the game designers aren't paying, but Margaret Weiss can pick up that tab 
And I think that that, you know, in why royalties. Now, also, again, she moved on past TSR. You could just say novels are more successful than role-playing games, or at least they were. You, we got to do something to make this more more profitable for the people that are allowing us to live our dreams. And and that was uh, an element, actually, that uh, struck me. I didn't, I didn't realize how much the publishing wing and the novels were the backbone really of the of the company um you know the, the likes of uh, as you say uh, margaret wise and the hickmans and uh, uh salvatore just generating that content was uh, vital for uh, the survival wasn't it yeah i, I want to say by the late 80s early 90s the fiction side of tsr was generating about as much gross income as the tabletop role-playing game side of TSR. It's one of the things that allowed the company to paper over uh, declining role-playing game sales because they suddenly had this <laughs> lightning struck twice. People like D&D so much, they will go and buy novels set in the worlds of D&D. And even though the novels were much cheaper than the role-playing games, they were way cheaper to produce. A lot of the novels, you needed one piece of cover art, a writer, an editor, that's about it. And to produce even a modest role-playing game supplement is a, a feat of titanic work. Like every time they came up with a new game world, suddenly you're looking at multiple writers, multiple editors, game editors, uh, cartographers, how many pieces of art I can't even imagine off the top of my head. So even those, though those items were priced much higher, uh, they were far less profitable than the the novels there was a rumor going around tsr at one point that everyone was going to come in one monday and it was going to be a fiction writing company and no longer a role-playing game company and again making money with role-playing games is really really hard uh, i think it's one of the reasons we had that recent kerfuffle with wizards of the coast is they're like hey the DD brand is a really big deal how come we're not making more money and you know you want to be like look Role-playing role playing games are an evergreen product, you know, and really you're selling people their imaginations back to them. It's always going to be hard to make a killing there because people can always not play your game and do something else. I think it was yeah. brand manager Ryan Dancy who said the primary competition for third edition D&D was not RuneQuest, not Call of Cthulhu. It was second edition AD&D. Um, yeah, you, you define that, don't you? As, um, I, I think you put it uh, quite cogently in the book as the RPG consumption problem that actually, you know, for uh, compared with other uh, sources of media, sources of uh, media content, it's actually a very good value, isn't it, from uh, an RPG book? Oh, yeah. And it's one of the reasons that the, the role-playing game industry is traditionally recession-proof. There's booms and busts. But even in a recession, people view role-playing games as a very good value and therefore worth the price. But, like, you know, um, if you're DC, you can get people buying a Superman comic every month. If, if you want to keep up with the MCU, you have to go see a Marvel movie every probably two or th what, three or four months now. They have one drop in. But if you want to play D and D, you could drop fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars, depending on where in the life cycle you're buying the game, and you could never buy anything from TSR ever again, uh, or Wizards of the Coast for that matter. A thing that you 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 heard Wizards of the Coast uh, CEO shucks, her last name is Williams. What's her first name? Christine Williams, second woman to run D and D, both named Williams. 
Anyway, uh, the, the new CEO, Williams, on a, on a call in December, talked about how, oh, we want to monetize players. We want to monetize players. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go forth and say people have been trying to do that for decades. It's never been super successful. I think it's wrong thinking. I think what you actually want to do is make D&D so easy for a dungeon master to run that you get more dungeon masters who then go find more players who then go buy your core books. Like, I think that's actually the the model they want to follow. Because again, like (laughs) here you have this thing that people are passionately excited about that, you know, like the the reviews of the D and D movie that have started coming out, which rated somewhere between good and fantastic, like you know whose whose heart doesn't begin to beat a little faster at the thought of an actually good D and D movie. So here we are, so invested, so so in love with this game. We don't need wizards, you know, like they can't get every player to give them ten dollars a month. Um, what can they give you for ten dollars a month that you don't already have? And that is the RPG consumption problem where like you just don't need to spend a lot of money to keep up with the game, which is also one of the virtues of the game. It's one of the reasons to do it. Um, And again, maybe they'll create a virtual tabletop that's so amazing that we all rush to give them money. And again, if they do, that's great. I would love to see a virtual tabletop that's so amazing that I'm like, sure, 10 bucks a month for that. Let's do it. But again, we haven't seen it yet. They tried it before with something called Gleemax in 2008. It never went anywhere. Sources tell me they spent over $100 million on this Gleemax thing back in 2008 and had nothing to show for it. Again, that's not a Wizards number. That's a back-channel number. So who knows if it's true? You know, we already have virtual tabletops. Like, how good is yours going to be that it makes everyone stop playing the virtual tabletops they already have and come to yours? I don't know. But yeah, it's hard to make money with role-playing games. One of the things um, we we talked about the... uh... We talked about the publishing. The other thing in the 90s was, you know, when I look at that retrospectively, you hear people talk about the great settings for D&D, so Dark Sun and Planescape. I mean, what what the book says is that they're maybe not as successful as the fans might have first considered. Just just tell us a bit about Dark Sun and Planescape because, it, as I say, that's a bit out of my uh, era. Here's a funny thing I've been thinking about lately, and I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this in, in my second volume of, of D&D history, which I assume I'm going to write. But role-playing games seem to go through a distinct like creative phase where you can really introduce new concepts. And then at some point... It, it ossifies, it becomes hard and brittle. And people are like, well, we know what the game is and now we want the game just to continue to be that game. Um, and you don't typically see a lot of uh, revolution or introductions of new things. And I feel like second edition was was in many ways that. It was the last true creative gasp of Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, like you've just got so many new settings that people still talk about today. In third edition, we got Eberron, which people are much are still excited about. Unless I'm not seeing it, like, you know, Wizards of the Coast has introduced a, a few new settings for fifth edition. I don't know that any of them have true passionate fans um, because it's always a one book and done, one book and done, one book and done. And the, there's a very good business reason that Wizards of the Coast uh, goes one book and done with all those settings. And that is that in the 90s, there is a clear link between the proliferation of settings and declining sales. Because as 
TSR created more settings, they were chopping up the fan base. And if if you liked, maybe you used to like Forgotten Realms, but then Ravenloft comes out and you're like, oh, this is great. I'm not buying any more Forgotten Realms stuff. I'm just buying Ravenloft. Dark Sun was one of those. It was a kind of post-apocalyptic setting where magic had ravaged the uh, the face of this planet called Athos. Um, and uh, because there wasn't much magic, you had a lot of psionics. Metal was rare, so there wasn't much armor. Everybody was fighting with obsidian weapons. Uh, it was a very, there were insect-like species that you could play. It was very, very cool. Um, and also, like, the the team that generated it was was really unique because it was a, a true fusion across media. Like you had artists like Brahm having a real say in how, how things went. Uh, you had fiction writers in there right away with the game designers uh, designing this setting. Um, and, and you got something really cool out of it. And you have people that are dedicated to that setting to this day. Then they see the sales numbers and they're like, what? That's it? That That's all it moved? Um, Planescape, which I think is the greatest thing that TSR ever produced. You know, it's a, a a city setting. It's the city at the center of the universe, the city of a thousand doors. You open a door and it leads to an entirely different world. You know, you can you can walk from Athos to Dragonlance through there. There, it was the '90s, so they were like, we're going to have factions now. There's like 13 factions in this city that can all fight, um, and uh, it's really really cool. Sales eh, not that good at all. Um, you know, really depressing when you see them. So, so again, the things that I find to be fascinating, there are first of all, that like the things that I think of as some of the best work TSR ever did, didn't sell very well and may, and was probably killing the game in some sense. And at the same time, I, I really feel like it was the last true creative flowering of D and D. And that from then on in third, fourth and fifth edition, so much of what they do is just going back and and giving you oh okay we're you're, here's your fourth edition Dark Sun book and the Dark Sun people are like yay it's also probably some sort of a transmedia lesson like the fact that almost thirty years after the publication of some of these works you have people that still think of themselves as fans of them um, and are still maintaining websites devoted to them and you know there's something about like uh having a novel and a game uh and being able to experience both that just pulls you in and and just just building on that it, it, this was a period wasn't it where they had a model of just putting products out there so they were accepting unsolicited uh, material and uh, just putting the product out there just to see how it did to see if um, they could find a new line that uh, people would take hold of. So they, they, they called it the fish bait strategy where they were like, okay, we have fantasy settings already. Let's create a horror setting to attract horror gamers. Let's attract this kind of magical uh, anti-magic post-apocalyptic setting in dark sun to attract, I guess, sword and sorcery people. They, these, settings would come out and usually they would do just okay to, to pour. I assume based on the fish bait strategy that they're like, Oh, look, we attracted like 30,000 new people to the game. We attracted 20,000 new people to the game, but that, that was probably not who was actually buying it. It was not people that had never seen D and B before and had not played in the forgotten realms. It was D and D fans that are like, Oh yeah, this is cool. And are buying it. Um, and I think that that is one of the things that, like, again, I, I would love to know 
what Lorraine Williams thought about all this because the sales numbers were largely kept from the staff. Who got sales numbers uh, really had to do a lot with when you were working there. They got more under lock and key as TSR went on. But because so many of the staff didn't know how their product was selling, it really is hard to know what should we design? Where should we go from here? You know, it's like designing in the dark. If all you're told is good job or it didn't do great. What do you do with that? You know? And one of the real scoops of the book um, that we enjoyed in our book club was this um, model that uh, Random House uh, had this formula, which meant that it was almost like a self-fulfilling Ponzi scheme where um, you had to have the products um, pumping out, which was fine when things were selling, but when they started to not sell, the whole thing collapsed. So... Random House agreed to a distribution agreement with TSR where Random House would pay TSR uh, not on the sale of their product by Random House, but rather on receipt of TSR's product by Random House. So when Random House gets, you know, 30,000 copies of Planescape, they pay TSR for 30,000 copies of Planescape. And technically, those were structured as loans, and uh, Random House could demand repayment of those loans. Um, And when things are selling, it's fine when you're not going to get a ton of returns. Uh, I want to say, you know, they budgeted for like a 10% return rate, and things were fine. But as sales dropped in the 90s, TSR started abusing this agreement to fund day-to-day operations. They would just print product, make sure it's shipped to generate that uh, payment, and boom, uh, you're you're in good shape. Suddenly, you're solvent, um, and you just don't tell anyone about the the bubble of debt at Random House that's growing and growing and growing and growing. According to uh, TSR, <laughs> their most profitable year ever was. Uh, 95 or 96, either in 95 or 96, has to be 95, they claimed to generate $40 million in sales. In in reality, it was $38.5 million in sales, but fine. But in, included in that number are, are loans from Random House. So they're just shipping product to Random House, uh, which generates a loan. They're taking that loan and just adding it to their gross sales and being like, oh, look, $38.5 million this year. This is wonderful. We're doing so good. People got awards and plaques because the sales were so good that year. Um, Peter Adkison uh, talked about how Wizards of the Coast was uh, pulling back on their RPGs because there was a contraction in the industry. And he said something about how he assumed it was hitting TSR as well. And TSR put out a gloating press release being like, nope, not, it's not, Peter. It's not affecting us at all. Sorry, your business sucks, but things are great here at TSR. And of course, 18 months later, he buys the company because they're failing. Um, but like, man, if you, could, if you just uh, take out loans and call that profit, you can succeed at business without really trying. As, as you've related this uh, story, there is a, a central figure, isn't there, in uh, Lorraine Williams, who gave oversight during this uh, period. And I, I think you give a pretty even-handed account of her role in in, in, in this, Ben. Well, thank you. I, again, I, I tried to because, you know, I was very conscious of not having talked to her 
and no one sits at home at night thinking I am such a villain. Um, you know, what villainous things will I do in the morning? So I have no doubt that she did not, when she was CEO of TSR, go home at night and think, ah, yes, my plan to drive Dungeons and Dragons into the uh, sewers proceeds apace. Um, so I do try to give her her due, especially since she she wouldn't talk to me. I still I still hope she will. I feel like one of these days she's just going to email me and be like, let's talk. I'm going to be like, OK, let's do that. But uh, yeah, I, again, I, I I certainly wanted to uh, do right by her. And again, I'm interviewing all her former employees who, who doesn't kind of hate their boss. You know, like we all kind of hate our bosses. It's just human nature. And, you know, uh, so many people were were hurt both financially and emotionally by the failure of TSR um, that I, I also have no doubt people kind of wanted to get their digs in. Um, so I just didn't want to, as John Peterson noticed, people lie. And I, I wanted to take everything with at least a grain of salt. I kind of like the the hope that one day the Book Rogers products would actually come do it good. So Lorraine Williams, her family owned the Buck Rogers copyright, which is why TSR started generating Buck Rogers material. Uh, and again, like a number of people have been like, you don't get it. Buck Rogers is awesome. <laughs> and again, maybe it's just the generation that I'm a part of, but man, I don't see it. It's, you know, old fashioned and corny and hasn't aged well. And I just don't think it, it speaks to any generation outside of the beginning of the 20th century, the the first half of the 20th century, let's say. So, but again, suddenly TSR is investing heavily in Buck Rogers novels, Buck Rogers short story collections, uh, numerous Buck Rogers games. Uh, and, you know, they apparently never sell well, but they, they just keep going back there. Uh, again, a, a famous quote, quote is Jim Ward said at a convention, we're going to keep make, making Buck Rogers product until you start buying it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, that yeah. a threat, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> I am sure it's your renaissance. It, it, it's going to come good at some point. <laughs> now, you not only uh, told the story uh, through this uh, great book, which is really uh, entertaining as well as informative, uh, Ben. You're doing a great job on it. Thank but you. Also, you're also a podcaster. So tell us a bit about um, Plot Points. So for a long time, Plot Points was uh, game reviews with me and a few friends. And uh, we're recording an episode tonight, actually. The first time we've recorded an episode together since like July. Um, so hopefully we're, we're mounting that horse again. But if you look at it right now, it's a lot of me and an academic reading aloud the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide because uh, my buddy Scott is essentially getting a doctorate in Appendix N. And uh, I, first edition AD&D, like I've never read this before, but I, I do know a fair amount about the business behind it. Reading it aloud with him is, is an interesting experience. And again, the audience seems to really enjoy it. And you, you've mentioned a couple of times about uh, doing a follow-up. Is that uh, an ambition or is that have you got some words down already? So I, I have 10,000 words on third edition already. Um, I would say my main problem right now is people, <laughs> <laughs> sources went from, oh man, someone who wants me to talk about TSR, this is great, to, 
oh god this guy this guy wrote a book about tsr it's in bookstores you know like whatever mm-hmm. i say to him could end up in barnes and noble ah <laughs> and pe- people have, have clammed up a little bit so we'll see well i'm going to look forward to that and well, thank, uh, thank you good good luck with it and uh, thanks for spending time with us my, my pleasure can i ask did you get the book uh digitally i've got a physical book oh here. my god how did you get that in the uk Amazon, I'm afraid. So really? I contributed wow. contributed to uh, Bezos' uh, uh, spaceship, but at least I got <laughs> your book. Oh well, and thank you so much for picking up. I appreciate it. White Dwarf, Star Frontiers, where no dwarf has gone before. Oi, Daily Dwarf, we're doing Star Frontiers on the Grog Pod. I need fifteen hundred words from you. Stat. Hmm. The latest assignment from his messianic megalomaniacness was going to be a bit of a problem. You see, Star Frontiers hardly featured in White Dwarf magazine. It was reviewed in Open Box issue number 37, where Andy Slack commented that the combat system was in the heroic style with people missing each other like crack Imperial stormtroopers, but also noted that space travel was virtually ignored before giving it a respectable 7 out of 10. Apart from that, though, the only time Star Frontiers appeared was in those back-page adverts where TSR cheekily referred to their science fiction RPG as the playable one. Naughty. But anyway, what is a Daily Dwarf to do? Well, it turns out that there were other RPG magazines back in the day, and the dangerous combination of lockdown, red wine, and eBay has meant that I've acquired a fair few of them recently. So, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be... emerges from swirling dry ice. Intermittent Imagine. Imagine. TSR UK's RPG magazine from the mid-80s. Unsurprisingly, had a decent amount of coverage of Star Frontiers. Plenty for us to dig into. I should note from the outset, though, that I've never played Star Frontiers, and I don't really know that much about it, apart from its reputation of having an interesting mix of aliens. So, the following comments are made in something of a state of ignorance. But when have I ever let that stop me before? The game itself was reviewed in the very first issue, where Jim Bambra was broadly positive about the game, noting its emphasis on pulp adventure while acknowledging the soon-to-be-infamous lack of starship rules in the initial box set. There was a smattering of module reviews in subsequent issues, and Star Frontiers also put in an occasional appearance in the Dispel Confusion Q&A column, Imagine's feature for rules lawyers everywhere. Apart from that, though, all the Star Frontiers content in the magazine consisted of adventures. This struck me at first glance as a notable contrast with the coverage of Traveller in White Dwarf, Here there were no articles on hard SF minutiae or discussions on the different cosmological models. But how did the adventures stack up? First out of the gate was Aramax 1 by John Tantablin in issue 4, which opened with a classic SF RPG setup. A mysterious patron pays the play characters to indulge in a little light industrial sabotage. This gave the play characters the opportunity for some 
Metal Gear Solid style infiltration of a technical facility, having to do the job against the clock. The time constraint injected a nice sense of urgency, enabling the games master to keep the pace of the adventure ticking along, with events likely to end in a good old firefight. Reading it now, it amused me to notice that this was science fiction seen through the lens of the 1980s. The state-of-the-art computer installation, consisting of a number of large beige cabinets, being one of the most obvious examples. A solid start for Star Frontiers in the magazine, and some traditional SF tropes, with one or two dashes of humour. This scenario was also picked by Dave Patterson of the Frankenstein's RPG podcast as an ideal introductory SF adventure. Check out Series 2, Episode 9 to hear his thoughts. Next up, well, a bit of a cheat. The Fire Opal of Set in Issue 14 was mainly written as a traveller scenario, but it was listed on the contents page as being for Star Frontiers 2, even if that just amounted to a small box on the final page, explaining how to convert the stats with some solid advice. Don't worry too much about the numbers. Ah, but how could I not include an adventure from the mind of Brian Talbot, set in the multi-dimensional worlds of Luther Arkwright, that started with a player introduction in the form of a comic illustrated by Talbot himself? This scenario was most definitely a cut above the norm, taking Brian Talbot's initial ideas, a team from Imagine, Mike Brunton, Jim Bambra and Paul Coburn, fashioned an epic dimension-hopping adventure, tasking the PCs to retrieve information on a potent doomsday device, while evading the dark influence across the parallels of the sinister disruptors. There's a very open structure to the main body of the adventure, with plenty of scope for player ingenuity, although care was required as it struck me that the scenario also featured a high level of lethality with plenty of cool, flavourful tech and characters and locations drawn from Brian Talbot's fertile imagination, this really looked to conjure the authentic feeling of adventuring in the worlds of Luther Arkwright, an exciting race against time for the PCs. The only problem for me? I wanted more. I couldn't help feeling that there's a follow-up adventure still waiting to be written. Brian listens to the pod, right? Maybe Star Frontiers isn't the obvious choice of system for this scenario, but I can't imagine a GM already familiar with the system would be tempted to tackle it. With pre-gen characters supplied, it's perfect for a one-shot. Dirk, of course, did just that, albeit with Mithras. Check out episode 9 of the pod and the Grognard Files website for Dirk and Blythe's discussion. In issue 18... Mike Brunton gave us the adventure On the Rocks for Star Frontiers, now with added spaceships. Yes, addressing that egregious deficiency, the scenario was built around the East Indiaman, a new spaceship class for the game. Hired as a salvage crew, the play characters had to check out a spaceship that had crashed on an asteroid while dealing with rival concerns trying their best to stop them. The setup for the adventure was quite straightforward, almost spare, and I think it would require additional work from the Games Master to add embellishments, to bring it alive. For me, there wasn't much, apart from one or two alien NPCs. 
to mark this out as a distinctively Star Frontiers scenario. The situation, with the play characters caught up in the machinations of commercial rivals, felt more like a typical traveller scenario. The emphasis on tech reinforced this impression. Half of the page count was given over to detailed specs and deck plans of the East Indian Man class freighter for those who liked that sort of thing. Sadly though, there was no mention of any pot plants in the staterooms. Finally, just prior to the demise of the magazine itself, we had the Sarafan file in issue 29. This was another Team Imagine production, with the original design by Paul Vernon and Sean Masterson, and then further developed by Mike Brunton and Jim Bambra, taking as their inspiration the works of British science fiction author Bob Shaw. Rather than presenting a single adventure, this feature consisted as a number of scenario outlines in the style of Traveller's 76 patrons, centred around the cartographical service, the planetary survey organisation from Shaw's Ship of Strangers series and the Seraphon class explorer spaceship, I have to say the authors didn't exactly sell this as a compelling opportunity for gaming when they wrote... A final problem with the missions undertaken by a Sarafan class explorer is that many of them are boringly routine, which does not aid in making the game exciting. Hmm. What of the scenario outlines? What missions were available for our budding play characters? Did they provide an exciting escape from the tedium of surveying planets? Well, there was an interesting mix investigating a lifeless world that may not be all that it seems, what happens when an away team lose contact with the mothership, identifying an unknown saboteur on board the survey ship, and then a couple more had a faint air of familiarity about them, investigating a wrecked ship, potentially carrying something deadly on board, dealing with a malfunctioning ship's computer with megalomaniacal tendencies. These last two didn't so much wear their influences on their sleeves as announced them with a blaring neon kit klaxon. But hey, if you're going to steal ideas, steal them from the best. All of the adventure seeds, plus the details of the survey ship itself, were dual-statted for Traveller as well as Star Frontiers but done properly this time, with some thought given to how the cartographical service would be integrated into a Star Frontier setting. I couldn't help feel, though, that this article was primarily developed with Traveller in mind. It had blue-collar science fiction aesthetic that I always associate with classic Traveller. In fact, this struck me about all of the Star Frontier's adventures in Imagine, Saving the fire opal of set, which was very much his own thing, they all felt like traveller scenarios. The dirty science fiction of cynical corporations, of individuals trying to get by in an uncaring universe, and maybe make a few books along the way. They didn't strike me as pulp adventures with noble heroes, strange worlds and bizarre aliens the shiny day-glow space opera of Flash Gordon and Star Wars. As I said at the start, these are just my impressions, having not played the game. Maybe these scenarios do have more of a pulp feel in play. I wonder whether 
by the mid-80s, Traveller had already got its hooks deeply embedded into the minds of UK gamers, so that when they thought of science fiction, they immediately thought of Traveller. White Dwarf had already helped to sell Traveller to the British gaming masses. Imagine itself, despite being TSR's house magazine, also featured Traveller-only articles from the likes of Marcus L. Rowland and Paul Vernon. Maybe it was already too late for Star Frontiers. I guess I'll need to roll some dice to find out. Speed rating! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Once again, we're, we're not in the pub. No. Right, next time. And I think it's about time we did another Thunder phase. Oh, yeah. 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 So Our original idea. But I've got this in front of me. Can you see this? This mm. is White Dwarf number 40. Yes. From April 1983. Okay. So exactly 40 years ago. Wow. That makes me feel very old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know why it makes you feel old? Because I am. <laughs> yeah. It could be that, couldn't it? Because I am old. Yeah. This cover. Do you remember this cover? It, it, it's the worst cover, isn't it? It's the one with the big... Alien heads and a pink background. Oh, the weird elongated alien profile head things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't a great cover, was it? But that Emmanuel, they did insist on using that Emmanuel and they were a bit hit and miss, weren't they? Yeah. I don't like his uh, cover to uh, Citadel of Chaos. Mm. Yeah, not a great cover. But you know. He did the Gith Yankee on Fiend Folio. No, they did that. Yeah, everybody assumed it was Russ Nicholson. Mm, yeah. And I think I misattributed it in a previous podcast. Were you told? I was told, yeah. I was Quite probably, rightly, isn't oh, it? I think you'll find. I think you'll find. <laughs> but yeah, it's, anyway, I wanted to do this one because this one has got an editorial in from Ian Livingstone 40 okay. years ago. Right. And see yeah. if you remember it because yeah. I think it was a hot topic. Yeah. Go on. For our 15 year old selves. And, and still is today, no doubt. It is, yeah. Here it is. I've often wondered why. This is me doing Ian Livingston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Ian Livingston. I get that. I can follow yeah, that. Yeah, okay. yeah. I've often wondered why I like fantasy and science fiction. The only common denominator is that they create imaginary worlds. Hmm. Personally, I prefer SF films and books to fantasy films, yet I prefer fantasy RPGs to SF RPGs. Am I alone? I doubt it. And sales reflect this. There's a drift away from SF. Yeah. So I remember debating that as a topic at the time. Mm. Do you think it still applies? Where do you stand on this? I think it does still apply, actually, because I think that sci-fi role-playing is, is more difficult to run and more difficult to write than fantasy. Mm. Because... And that that kind of ties into the fact that fantasy is an easier default position to to role play in than sci-fi. I think even even the modern world of Cthulhu, you know, like it's probably easier to to role play in than sci-fi because sci-fi brings with it all sorts of problems, doesn't it? In, in that there's just more in it. There's more in sci-fi. More you have to worry about. So you got spaceships. So in fantasy world. If you're going on a journey in a fantasy world, let's set aside boats. How are you going to get there? Got a horse. Are you going to walk? Aren't you? 
Yeah. But in sci-fi, you've got spaceships, haven't you? Then you've got yeah. vehicles, different types of vehicles, a lot more weapons to worry about. And then you've got stuff, haven't you? Like computers and uh, med packs and this and that and all this stuff. And although people uh, say, and I, and I know where people are coming from when they say it, and I agree to a point, people say, well, just you treat that like magic items, don't you? So the handheld computer that translates things is like a magic item. That's all you have to just view it that way. Mm. It's not quite the same because in fantasy, a magic item is a one-off thing, isn't it? The, the helm of translation is a one-off thing. Handheld computer. Everyone's got them in sci-fi. Everyone's got everything, haven't they? Yeah. It's like a shit. It's like a spaceship in, in travel. You've got... It, it's full of stuff, isn't it? Because we do it in Patterson's Renate Studio all the time. Surely we've got a welding rod. Surely we've got a computer that does this. It's, it's what, with tech level 15? We'll have, a, we'll have a holographic whatever. And you go, yeah, all right. It all kind of gets very difficult to manage. I and, I, and I think... That's why I like, I prefer science fiction as yeah, a player, yeah. mm. as a player. Yeah. Um, to art yeah. Because um, I, I probably play more science fiction than I yeah. run, um, but I prefer it. And I think I still, I did back then to be a contrarian yeah, back yeah. 40 years ago. Mm. I mean, he's, he's writing this a year after Conan and Sword and the Sorcerer. I mean, how can he say that he prefers Science fiction film. <laughs> yeah. I always find uh, uh, fantasy settings a little bland and there's little room for uh, innovation and diff- different styles of play, I, I guess. And I know, like like you saying, people say, well, you can just transpose um, espionage and uh, all the things that come with science fiction into a fantasy setting. But to me, for medieval environment, is not my preferred location to yeah, play. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. But then again, I think it's off comparisons that's often made, but they're not really fair comparisons, are they? Because science fiction literature, and science fiction films, can be quite high concepts and and be about very different things than what fantasy is about. They're not a complete, completely comparable anyway, are they? They no. seem comparable in the face of it, but I don't think they really are. No. Can you really compare Philip K. Dick? To Tolkien, I don't think you can. No, the people the people who, who read Tolkien might read Philip K. Dick, and vice versa. It's in the same ballpark, but it's I don't think it's comparable, is it? Yeah, very, very. Yeah. Scanner Darkly versus Fellowship of the Ring. It's, you, you, it's just not comparing like we like it at all, are you? But it, even within the um, space of uh, science fiction, you get a whole range yeah, of things. Of course, well, you do, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Because. Um, I've never found, as we've discussed previously, I've never found the appeal of Star Trek. I missed it when I was yeah, uh, younger. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't that much into Doctor Who, yeah. and I wasn't that much into Blake Seven and those yeah. kind of things. But I used to love fantasy um, exploitation movies, like the uh, mm. you know the terrible ones that were out there. <laughs> those those uh, you know Italian ones. I used yeah. to kind of seek them out uh, and, and and watch them. And I used to read the uh, doorstep uh, fantasy book. If, if you said to me tonight, right, I'm going to run something that's vaguely around Scanner Darkly, so you'll be playing yeah. undercover cops trying to expose a, a substance that is being used mm. and exploited, I'd say, yeah, I'll play that. It's a similar kind of problem, isn't it? People compare sci-fi and fantasy, the same, the same side, 
different sides of the same coin almost when you look at the films and books they're not really and maybe sci-fi and fantasy gaming are quite distinct things they're quite different things have to be run quite differently and the mistake you make certainly the mistake I think I made when back in the day when we were that or that age originally reading that and I was running Traveller was that I probably tried to run Traveller like it was RuneQuest yeah and it's not is it no. You know, it, it's not. Sci-fi is not the same as fantasy. It no. seems on the face of it similar. And I suppose something like Star Wars seems very similar, doesn't it? But it's not the same. And that, that creates that kind of problem, I think, when you're running them. And it doesn't stop the games manufacturers trying to land on a science fiction concept that people yeah. will run with. Obviously, he was writing this in '83. Uh, yeah. A few years later, his company would take off yeah. Games Workshop on the backs of a science fiction Warhammer 40k. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. That would be yeah. the one yeah. that captured everybody's mm. imagination. You're listening to the Grognard Files. Get another Obnob. Sci-fi role-playing, I would say, is the hardest. Some, some people often say horror is, but I'm not sure I think sci-fi is. It, yeah. it requires you as a games master to keep a lot of plates spinning and keep your wits about you because... People do think, well, I'm in a technologically sophisticated world, this, that and the other's going on, you know, and describe everything and make sure everything's sort of vivid and difficult thing. And that probably dissuades some people from sci-fi role-playing, I think. Certainly has dissuaded me in the past, I think. Let's have a look at how Star Frontiers tackles Mm. science fiction role-playing. Yeah. Star Frontiers, as we used to... Star Frontiers. Star Frontiers, Frontiers. with the emphasis on the front... Uh, because we used to play this game with uh, Moggy, who was our in our school group. Mm. I say school group. School group, three of us. Three of us, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> Me, you and Moggy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and we played that. And uh, I think if we relayed before, no. played a lot of basic we D&D. Played, we'd, we'd run. We'd, I ran basic D&D, didn't I? That, yeah. that club was really me running basic D&D. I ran Castle Amber and Curse of Xanathon and some of those modules. And then eventually Moggy decided that he wanted a role-playing game. But of course, the prime directive, yeah, a very science in. fiction concept, kicked <laughs> in, didn't it? And of course, he couldn't buy basic D&D. So he had a look and he saw Star Frontiers. Star Frontiers. And decided to buy that. And I think, did we have a trip to Manchester? And he bought it. He did. Did he it from Games Workshop? He did, yeah. Yeah, he did, yeah. And then we played. A lot of excitement, wasn't there? There was, yeah. And I think you were a bit greener in the gills, weren't you? I was very jealous, I think, because I had Traveller and... As has been discussed many times on this podcast, Shavala had a problem with these little steer uh, little black books with no illustrations and, uh, you know, whereas Star Frontiers had a picture, a sci-fi cover, didn't it, of spacefarers with laser guns and it had laser guns in it and all sorts of, it was a bit Buck Rogers, wasn't it, I suppose. And I, I was a bit jealous thinking, oh, he's, he's got a sci-fi game I wanted that has like blob aliens in and and it has, well, we will talk about this in a minute, I'm sure. It's like an evil race, doesn't it? Like yeah. Classic sci classic Saturday morning TV sci fi, whereas Traveller was like completely <laughs> nothing like that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I was a bit jealous. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. That Saturday morning animated cartoon feel yeah, to yeah. it. I yeah, think, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it does, I think it tries very hard with a valiant effort to try and simplify things mm. to make it I mean people I think mistakenly 
so it is D and D in space, but it's not that, is it? It's no, no. It, no. It, particularly mechanically, and we'll look at the mechanics in a minute. Yeah. It's probably more aligned with gangbusters, and it's very, it's very simple. And you, to its credit, it does seem aimed at getting people into role playing games. Yes, it, it, it's trimmed down and simple, and not, it's not a difficult system at all. Yeah. It's certainly not travel with vectors. No or vectors in it, anything like that's it. You know? Well, it, it it tries a pick up and play approach, so you get yeah. this uh, basic set of rules, which has got about sixteen pages mm. in it, and that includes a solo game because yeah. all of them had to have a solo game, didn't they? And uh, rules for monorails, so you can, uh, essential, essential, essential for any sci-fi game. <laughs> Mark, Mark Mark Miller, Peck Tech Note. Yeah. Are there any rules for monorails and travel? <laughs> So it drills it right down to the essentials, <laughs> apart from monorails, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and try to live in. And you're right, it's a fairly broad brush universe. Yeah. Yeah, pulp style. Yeah, it is. It's a very colourful kind of, yeah. Clue in the title, Star Frontiers. It takes yeah. the idea that it's the Wild West out there, set of alien species that are the good guys. Yeah. But out there, there's uh, satyrs, satyrs. Yeah, yeah satyrs are the, the baddies, aren't they? Yeah. Worm-like aliens. Worm, who are intent yeah. on taking over the universe. There's, there's always someone like trying to do that, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I think is good about it is the, the satyrs have, have, have tried to do direct assault on taking over colonies and mm. different planets. And now they've tried a new approach of... Uh, appropriating the other yeah. aliens into their cause. So there's an element of paranoia about it. So yeah. you're never quite sure whose side people are on. So I think that's quite a clever touch as well, um, which is handled quite well in the early modules. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it, yeah, it gives you a nice broad universe that you can step into. And, and gives you, I suppose, like, a bit like Star Wars with the Empire, it gives you as players and a games master, let's say, has kind of framework where you've got baddies, you've got goodies, you've got, you can fit into it. And, and particularly, I suppose, people might say it's unsophisticated, and it is unsophisticated, but again, if you're a kid, and the market for the, the games at the time was generally kids, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, we were part of that generation that were part of the, the role-playing boom, so they were aiming it at us. And as a kid, as a 13-year-old, that's kind of what you want, isn't it? You want yeah. a science fiction game where there's some baddies that you think, right, these are the bad guys, they're trying to take over the universe, fight them, that kind of thing. And I think it was a response to the last time we talked about the satanic panic. It was a way of neutralising that kind of debate, yeah. Yeah. of having something looking a little bit more wholesome. Yeah, the, yeah. The demons yeah. and uh, dragons. Yeah, and I suppose with it not being fancy, it's more in line with TV shows, isn't it? Like Buck Rogers and yeah. that kind of thing that, you know, yeah. that's <sighs> viewed as more innocuous. Okay, so I, I'm going to uh, pick the highlights this okay, time. Okay, you and do that. Change of you've format. Run it, I've run I've it. Played it. We've, we've played it again, haven't we? And you've run it and I've played it again after 40 years. Yeah, so <laughs> I've been the judge, so it's only fitting yes, that I, uh, I, think that's fair I pick it. Okay, so what I'm going to um, say is the highlights are the distinctive alien species at the centre of it, yep. playing character species, and... Um, Secondly, the attributes, the way that they deal with the attributes and skills in general. Mm. Um, three, good gear. I'm calling it good gear. Yeah, okay. yeah so the distinctive 
alien species. Yeah. You've got the humans, you can play humans. Yeah, can play humans. But who wants to play humans when you've got, as alternatives, the Drellocyte. And the Drellocyte are the blobs. They kind of uh, can mm. construct themselves into uh, different shapes. They're yeah. kind of a pure muscle that can either go very flat or very long. And um, I played one of those when we played it with Moggy. I played a Drellocyte, yeah. didn't I? Yeah. yeah. So you've got the Drellocyte. Yeah. Oh, right. Who, he doesn't want to play a dwell site. Yeah. yeah. You want to play a dwell site? Well, what else have I got for you? I've got a rusk. <laughs> a rusk, yeah. A yeah. rusk, a giant insect yeah. with uh, mandibles and mm. uh, very dexterous um, feet. They've got, they've got uh, eight in total. Yeah. Eight feet in total. A hard shell. Don't need armour because they've got a hard shell. Mm. So they're going to be, uh, they're not vulnerable to much. And they're quite industrious. And uh, you can make a... Noise when you, you speak. Noise when you speak. Yeah. I see you did, you know, again, I think. Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah. Well done. Don't want to play for us? Mm-hmm. Don't want to play a dweller site? Yeah. Don't want to play a human? Who wants to play a human? Yeah. <laughs> All right, then, I'll offer you yeah. a, a gliding monkey wearing sunglasses. Now that, how could one resist <laughs> such a thing? A flying monkey in sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, the, the Yazarins. So the... <laughs> Yeah, these these are the ones that everybody wanted to play. I think I played that when we played <laughs> back in done, yeah. Yeah. with Muggy. Because, um, you know, it, they, they've got uh, light-sensitive uh, eyes, so they have to uh, wear these uh, shades, and it looks cool. And uh, they've got this membrane so they can uh, glide. glide. Yeah, glide and glide. Uh, glide yeah. So. Yeah. so those are the, the, the species uh, that, that you can play. For grabs. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you more options and... Than your standard archetypes, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, they're kind of like colourful aliens, aren't they? Particularly Drellocytes, they're colourful kind of aliens, aren't they? They're essentially a bit silly, because you think, could could any... You, you, kind of, the rules of biology are probably broken, aren't they? But it, it doesn't matter, because it's that kind of science fiction, isn't it? Where I, mean, I don't want to keep making comparisons to Traveller, but I suppose that like, Traveller would be more logical, wouldn't it? You wouldn't you wouldn't get that in, and I remember when Moggy got the rules, thinking, "Oh look, blob like these blob aliens," but because yeah. you don't get it in Traveller, because Traveller's trying to be serious and be there. Like, yeah. Is that a viable thing? Is it yeah. really? No, it's probably not. So we're not doesn't have things like that in it as yeah. aliens, but there's a kind of logic to it, pseudo scientific logic to aliens and Traveller. Whereas these are just fun aliens, aren't they? Yeah, flying monkey. There you go. Yeah, no one really cares about the logic of it is, and. What it does strongly as well is put you on the uh, side of good because you're yeah. part of yeah. the um, interplanetary uh, uh, union of... Uh, yeah, whatever. What? But yeah, it's a, clear, it, it, it's a clear cut, it's a kind of clean cut sci-fi, isn't it, where you're the good guys fighting, there are bad guys and you're the good guys, you know, and get on with it. You yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> The white hats. Here's your, the here's your laser yeah. pistol. Off you go. Yeah. 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 So I think, I, I think when I put this in front of uh, players, I run it at conventions that immediately people start yeah. getting into it because yeah. they can, they've got something to work with. Second thing on the topic is attributes. And it mm. deals with attributes in an interesting way, I think. Because a bit like, as we said with uh, gangbusters, it's a percentage based system. 
and most of the uh, your ability to do things are derived from your attributes which are expressed as a percentage but it does a, uh, a different thing in that it differentiates between different types of attributes so you get a figure that is for your logic and one for intuition which I like because they are both different instincts aren't they so yeah 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 and applying them you don't need loads and loads of skills listed for you to say well yeah this is a logic problem so you'll need to apply your logic or see yeah this is more about how you feel about it and using your instincts to kind of derive the best way of doing it and they do that again with dexterity and reaction speed for example so there's like that clear different differentiation which is good, not a bad thing actually for particularly for the time because you you always got that in D and D didn't you with it? dexterity but dexterity comes in a number of ways doesn't it you can yeah. be quite um slow but dexterous with your hands you know and vice versa can't you yeah dexterity is yeah, covers yeah, two, covers two things really isn't it yeah, yeah. it covers everything that. from uh, manipulation to uh, jumping off a building but doing it this yeah. way <laughs> it does don't yeah yeah, this well, way is you've got a bit of uh, yeah. a, a differentiation, and it's got skills. It does have skills, and similar to the gangbusters, it only really introduces it into the expanded game, and they're expressed as a number. So you might have computers two, for example. Yeah. yeah. And what that does, it, and then it's not an exhaustive list, but it gives you a, a passport to do things. So if you encounter a computer. Yeah. That's at a level one or two. means that you can do something, do something do with, it. with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it also adds um, percentage to your logic or yeah. whatever you're doing. When you're using the computer. When you're using the computer. Yeah. So um, I think it deals with um, those skills uh, in an interesting way. And the skills encourage you to interact with the world. Yeah. So there are robots. Yeah. and you as adventurers can manipulate those robots because they have particular missions and skills that you can tap into mm. if you've got the appropriate yeah, skills. Yeah, robots have missions, don't they? Yeah. They usually have a mission rule, don't they? Don't yeah. Again, it's quite... quite it's, a funny, it's a funny system because it, it's not particularly sophisticated, but it is, it is okay, actually. Yeah. It does work. It does work. And you can imagine, again that audience that they were aiming it at, getting that and going, oh, yeah, okay, I can, I can understand how this works. Yes, There's not yeah. much to it, but that, getting it from a point of view of being a 14-year-old, getting into it, yeah, you, you can see how people would get into it because it's quite accessible. And that's the word I'm looking for. It's an accessible system, yeah. not complicated, and it does what it needs to do. And it goes back to your opening remarks, isn't it, about how difficult it is to... Yeah represent a science fiction world and what yeah. they're doing with this is having some strong bold yeah. aliens at the center of it yeah quite a, a loose setup yeah but also um, a system which is fairly simple to grasp but there are some elements that are yeah. quite useful yeah. in a game and, yeah. and it's like, I suppose like a skill thing isn't it that that's another problem with sci-fi the skill list is always explored because you know, again, go back to fantasy, ride, ride, ride a horse, riding skill, there you go, riding skill. Fantasy, you've got uh, fly spaceship, uh, that's different from flying a plane, 
and it's different from driving a grav vehicle, or and that's different from driving a wheeled vehicle, and that's different from driving a piloting a boat, isn't it? So you immediately the skills explode, and I suppose it tries to avoid that, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't fall into that trap of doing that, because if it did that, it would become a much more unwieldy system, yeah. and again, put maybe put people off. Yeah, there is a bit of that. There is a bit of that when it comes down to uh, my next point, yeah. which is gear. Gear, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, with uh, world building, it does it with a light touch and creates interesting stuff. Yeah. I mentioned the robots, but it also does your personal equipment, gives yeah. it catchy things like gyro uh, jet pistols. Gyro jet pistols, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the grenades. Bizarre rules for grenades. Bizarre yeah. rules. We need to talk about the <laughs> We need to talk about grenades, don't we? <laughs> we talk about grenades. We need to talk about grenades. It, again, with the gear, they have g- great effects or yeah. fun effects. So you can get a tangler, which sends out a plastic yeah. that yeah. Um, entraps your, your uh, opponent. And I suppose it does It does try and do it as if they're magic items, doesn't mm, it? Yeah. That's what it tries. They're going back to what I was saying earlier, that that, that comparison to, say, tech, tech in a sci-fi game is like magic doesn't often always work in sci-fi games because it's not just giving you an effect. No. It, it does a multitude of things. But in Star Frontiers, they, they do try and do that where it gives you a particular effect. So it's like, it is like a magic item, isn't it? Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah. 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 Which works quite well. It yeah. simplifies it, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, it, it's just things like, uh, I like the shot, shot gloves as well. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> The uh, skimmers. So the the what they name the vehicles and the stuff gives you an idea of what that, it is. That, yeah. that, that world, that city. Yeah. 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 I think my low light mm-hmm. is its obsession with positioning. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about these games? Yeah. Yeah. A weird thing that it's actually quite broad brush so skills like you say skills it doesn't give you skills uh, that many skills it all relies on attributes and it does it in a very broad brush way so you can engage with the world and go I want to do this and the game just go wow okay give me a dexterity role give me a this role give me that it's fine well then when you get yeah it's comrades positioning this is all it gets really granular all of a sudden it, yeah weird wow lines of sight and, yeah uh, that yeah kind, that kind yeah. of thing and elevation and of course when you adjust uh, percentage points for all those kind yeah. of things yeah it starts getting ridiculous because you're not great to begin with so as things get adjusted because of lines do you not, do you not think though do you not think that the reason for that and i'm just I have no evidence for this. The reason for that is because it's still rooted, role-playing is still rooted in wargaming. So the designers of the game think we're quite happy with broad brush stuff when it comes to skills and doing things. But when it gets to combat, the wargamer instincts are still there and somehow it, it becomes very wargaming. Maybe, I, you I think, know, I, think, I don't know. Whereas well, think... maybe games now are designed by people who aren't war gamers, and therefore that's when you get all the zones and all the more uh, abstract things going on. Whereas maybe back then, when they looked at it, they somehow, despite themselves, they couldn't help but go down that road. I think so. I think that's definitely 
Um, and I, I think that's the uh, thing that Pookie um, says, you know, that it's still got its, uh, mm. it's still holding on to um, its war game roots. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I can see that. However, I'd also think that there is something about the product. So at this time, so you know, Dragon Quest, uh, Gangbusters, mm. and there are others that were brought out at this time that were all in this format, which was a familiar format from Avalon Hill of having a box, a yeah. couple of rule books, a map, and then this one, it's a brightly coloured map. It's a brightly coloured map, it's a spaceport, isn't it? It yeah. actually looks now like Lee Shopping Centre <laughs> or where I live in Manchester. Chop said it's not a monorail. There is a monorail, hence the monorail route. Yeah, yeah. Lee Shopping Centre doesn't have a monorail. It, it, it could do with one. <laughs> Andy Burnham, if you're listening, could do with one, but that's a... Greater Manchester passenger transport issue, isn't it? Not, not for staff and tears, but anyway. And they also came, as did the KRC and stuff, with uh, yeah. tokens and counters. Yeah. And I think it, I, I don't know, is it part of the marketing thing? So the products are done, are done that way. But also that feeling that miniatures should be part of the game. Yeah. And I, I think there's definitely that. It, it's to sort of avoid the old, there's no board. There's no board. Yeah. What's going on here? It gives you a board, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't need a board, but it gives you conventional. You go away and buy Star Frontiers. You've never played a role-playing game before. You open it up, and whilst it might be a bit bewildering, there is a board with counters in to latch onto, which are conventional gaming things. Yeah. I think I think that's a big part of it, definitely. And I, and I, and I think it's only, I mean, with AD&D a aside... Mm. Um, it's only a bit later when people, the, these companies get more confident in producing books, or just rule books, yeah. rather than boxes. I mean, we like the boxes, but I think that is the driver for some of this positioning stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely is a, yeah, to give you a sense that it's like a conventional game, something to cling on to if you've never opened the role playing game box before. That yeah. said, that said, most of the fun that I've had playing the game recently is derived from the positioning, particularly when it comes to throwing a grenade. Throwing a grenade. An incredible thing that in this game you can shoot a gun, fly a spaceship, do all sorts of things. The one thing you'll find you can't do, which is ironically the only thing I would say me and you can do <laughs> in, real life. in real life is throw a grenade <laughs> in a particular direction. Because you, you basically have to roll to hit, don't you? Yeah. So say you're 50%, you roll to hit. If you fail to hit, you then have to roll on a, a, a dice yeah. to see which direction it goes in. Yeah. It could go in any direction. <laughs> any direction. Behind you. It's what I call a Jack Douglas. Remember Jack Douglas from Carry On Films, the guy who used to yeah. be the funny old... Yeah, he'd be right. <laughs> and he'd sell a pint of beer or something. It's the Jack Douglas rule of grenade throwing, isn't it? That, that, yeah. you, know, you throw it. And it slips out of your hand and goes behind you. Yeah. Somebody yeah. behind you gets tangled. Yeah, there's 50-50 <laughs> chance that if you throw a grenade, um, you kill yourself or your friends. <laughs> yeah. Poor weapon. And it was funny when we were playing it because I think um, someone threw... I think it was one of the bad guys threw yeah. a grenade. We all had grenades. And one of yeah. the bad guys threw a grenade. And it went wrong. And they blew up a companion, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. And we all uh, looked at each other as if to say... Well, I'm not sure I want to throw these grenades now. <laughs> I don't think. And one of us did throw a grenade at the end. Blew his own arm off. 
He probably didn't. So he threw it, but he yeah. didn't throw it. Yeah. It came it's, back at him or something. Yeah, yeah. What are the chances? Just throwing something, isn't it? Yeah. I've got a dog, and I go in the back garden and throw a ball for the dog for half an hour. Yeah, that's training, though. Do you know, but you know what? You're increasing your percentage, rate. But you know what? On no occasion... As the ball left my hand and got over next door's gar- garage to the right of me. It, it generally goes in the right direction. <laughs> and yet, in this game, that's not the case. Yeah. Maybe it's some, maybe it's gravitational effects of these planets, something like that. <laughs> Could be, couldn't it? Yeah. Low-grav worlds or high-grav worlds. Don't throw a grenade. Yeah. Go anywhere. I'll think of that next time you're throwing that ball for it. It might end up in your neighbour's garden and they get entangled. But it won't. <laughs> this is the point. It won't. I'm not Jack Douglas. <laughs> on many things, I'm not Jack Douglas. <laughs> in, in, the, in the basic and expanded game, um, you don't get any stuff for um, space travel. No, no, that's a, that was a bit of criticism of it, wasn't it? Yeah. I think in some of the reviews. And I suppose it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that sci-fi does require all these almost mini-games, I suppose, these extra yeah. bits, which, which can, uh, can make it a bit more intimidating. Than fantasy, but yeah, they did a did a later supplement, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, Nighthawks. Yeah, 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 which expanded the rules for um, spaceships. But I've never used that, and I've never felt the need to use it really, because um, yeah. the modules that I've played haven't yeah. used that. I think then when we played with Moggy back in the day, we played the Vulturanus ones, which yeah. are the early ones. You do need spaceships in sci-fi because I think spaceships are sort of the monsters. Mm. of sci-fi aren't they when you think about it if, if you play when we play Traveller I sometimes think the spaceships are the monsters in the films they are aren't they the Star Destroyers are like they're like monsters so if you're in your little spaceship and suddenly and it's happened in Pirates of Drinac suddenly a, a pirate ship appears that's stronger than you who can outgun you there's a sense of like this Great. thing's terrifying isn't it yeah. you know and so it's difficult to do sci-fi without spaceships because it's an integral part of it, isn't it? And I've, I did have a look at the Nighthawk rules, and that, again, they're not particularly inspiring. But then what spaceship combat rules are? Because, again, I think you just get default war game a default thing, yeah. which is, you know, maybe discussion for another time about starship combat and role-playing. But, yeah, they don't, they don't fill you with uh, excitement. Well, they didn't with me, anyway. The two modules that I played recently are ones that are produced by TSI UK, so uh, Tim Bamber and, and yeah. that, that crew, um, Bugs in the System and Dark Side of the Moon. And what is distinctive about those, are it really goes into the idea that it's corporations. Mm. It's corporations that determine this world and that's where all the sinister goings-on are. So they, they are quite sophisticated, the modules, compared with the rules are quite sophisticated. Mm. Yeah, well, the one we played was like that, wasn't it? I mean, I know it was a, a one-shot, but, yeah, they had, like, corporate skullduggery, didn't it, and stuff going on in it. So my observations playing it recently, mm. three things, right? First yeah. thing is it all felt a bit rushed when I played it. That might be down to me. But mm, yeah. Yeah. we'll come back to that. It generates a lot of laughter. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's again. fun. It is fun. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is it's fun. fun. And it, although it's an old game, I don't think it's particularly frustrating in the way that some old games are. You know, it doesn't. No. It, its rules are simple, but they're not frustratingly simple. You don't. You don't feel like 
you know, like we've played some stuff, haven't we? Like, yeah. you, you know, Aftermath or uh, The Morrow Project, where you think, oh, he's wrote this. To yeah. be fair, it is, it's workmanlike, but it does work. It, you can play it. Yeah. You can play it now, and you'd be aware of some of its simplicity. But it, it's, fun. it's still fun. It is still yeah. fun to play. And then third observation is at some point, it always goes a bit dark. <laughs> <laughs> that something occurs that you think, oh, that's out of tone yeah. with uh, yeah. the rest of it. Mm. Um, so I think I think in terms of it being rushed, feeling rushed, I think that's partly my my fault because I've tried to do uh, modules as convention one shots to try yeah. and fit kind of big ideas yeah, into yeah, a yeah. small space. It can happen, can it? Um, it didn't feel rushed to me. When I played it, it didn't feel rushed. I suspect that's a game master's perception because you've hacked up a module to make right. it fit a two, two, two and a half, three hour slot. Didn't feel rushed particularly to me. But I don't know whether it's a bit like, uh, because it feels superficial, it's yeah. a bit like that mm. fast food mentality. Yeah, you know, when yeah. it, if you've ever had a McDonald's milkshake too fast and you get brain freeze, it's a bit like <laughs> that. You, know, you feel <laughs> yeah. like... It is fast food, so I've got to eat it quickly. Yeah. Same with this, because it's quite light. You don't want people dwelling too long on what might yeah. happen. Yeah. But it, it's a lot of fun, and it generates a lot of laughter. And I think the darkness comes from a kind of a British sensibility. Yeah, because it's very clean cut, isn't it? It is yeah. very... It is, say, the book Rogers thing. It is a very clean cut sci-fi, isn't it? Good versus evil, that kind of thing. Shiny suits and laser busters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think our two thousand AD yeah mentality. And yeah. I don't. I think maybe that's baked into some of the modules that I played because the uh, TSI UK that there is a little bit more of a darker tone. There is a bit because in the one we played, someone had pointed a load of nuclear missiles at a planet and going to extinguish all life on it. Yeah, it's kind of dark, isn't it? Yeah, you know. So, well, I'm talking about the moment when uh, the driller side tried to rip into somebody's face. Yeah, off. oh yeah, yeah. That was player in, player instigated darkness. That's <laughs> one thing, but yeah. there is some darkness in it. Yes, the, the nuclear missile thing was. I thought that's quite dark, isn't it? It is it's dark. A nuclear Armageddon. If we don't stop the missiles, everyone on the planet's dead. That's <laughs> quite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It did. It was, when you think about it, it was an Alder, Alderaan moment, isn't it? Really. <laughs> Yeah, a bit of ethnic cleansing, that, wasn't it, as yeah, well? Yeah, there is to... darkness, yeah, there's darkness in it, I think, intrinsically in it, maybe. Yeah. One more so than you think. So would you would you add it to a repertoire? So if I said, like, we're going to do a yeah. prolonged period, yeah. would you be happy with that, or is it just one? I'd quite play it. I would be happy to play it again, yeah. I'd be happy to yeah. play it. Um, I'm not sure I'd run it, but I'd be happy to play it, yeah. I can see the problem that it's a bit simplistic maybe there's not enough to it I don't know but then again you know the scenario's good aren't they yeah so that that's often as we often say it's not just the system is it the scenarios can carry it as well can't they so yeah yeah I don't, I, to be honest I've, I've played a lot of old games for this podcast and some of them have been found wanting and we've found them frustrating and we've thought no thanks yeah I'm not playing that again but to be fair with this, I think it, I think it's okay. Yeah. No, and I think I'll it's okay. I think I'll keep it on my repertoire for convention games because mm. people like are drawn to it. Yeah, yeah. for its nostalgia. Yeah, 
But it's also got that sense of fun, and I honestly, I've had some real fun. Yeah, it is fun, and it maybe it's fair to say it's difficult to find many sci-fi games that are like that. You know, yeah. that are fun. It reminded me a lot of Slipstream that we played with Savage Worlds. It's very yeah. much like Slipstream, which is a lot of fun. That's kind of Flash Gordon kind of model, isn't it, of sci-fi? It's a very similar sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's fun and it's accessible, and you can jump into it without worrying too much about understanding it. It's yeah. it's a sci-fi world you can understand. I suppose a bit like me playing Star Wars role playing, and so we've said that haven't we? If you played Star Wars role playing, you know the universe and think right, okay, yeah. and get into this. Whilst you might not know the universe of Star Frontiers. It's pretty quick to pick up on. You yeah. get the gist of it and you get on with it pretty quickly. With some sci-fi games, that's not always the case, is it? No. Yeah. And the reason why Buck Rogers killed it off? Go on. Well, Lorraine Williams, who took over TSR, her grandfather had acquired the rights to uh, Buck Rogers. So this oh. was stopped as a line and replaced by uh, By Buck the Buck Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. Oh, and did Buck Rogers use the same system? No. It's a different, completely different yeah. game. No. Well, because they thought it'd be in competition with their own game. I think they just wanted to milk that IP for as much as they can. Yeah. Ah, there you go. There you go. I don't even remember Buck Rogers, the role-playing game. Beady Beady. Beady Beady. That robot, yeah. Beady Beady. Beady Beady. Beady. <laughs> what was he called? Don't Tweaky. Tweaky. Tweaky or something. Tweaky. I don't know. I can't remember that. He's the voice that. There you go. Alright, see you in a bit. See ya. The Save for Have podcast covers old school gaming and the modern games inspired by them. Listen in to hear about games from the 70s and 80s as well as their modern descendants. You can download episodes wherever podcasts are found on iTunes, Google, and other fine podcast distributors. You should also check them out on saferhalf.com or email them at saferhalfpodcast at gmail.com. I'll get me caught! Welcome back to the Zoom of Roleplaying Rambling, uh, to I'll Get Me Caught, where we are about to leave the room, but we're doing a bit of closing time chatter. But we have actually left the room, and we're having to do this on a phone call, because <laughs> we we can't get to speak to each other, can we, these days, Blighty? No, what's gone wrong? <laughs> Let's oh. just go back to the pub. Well, next time, I insist we do it in the pub. It's just, I'm going to... Sure. I could sell my agents. I want it right into the contract. The next recording is in the pub. I don't care if it's Gary Newman in the background. I don't care. It's easier for us. It's hard, isn't it, trying to find space for us to talk to each mm. other? Let's see. What what's uh, the bit of closing time chatter that you've got? What's your any other business? Well, my my closing time chatter is is about Monster of the Week. Oh yeah, former star of Speed Rating. I think it was the first ever yeah, Speed Rating. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is a strange thing. There is now a hardback version of the book being produced. I don't know what kind of light this puts me in, but I saw this being advertised as a hardback version of the rules. I think it's the same book. It's exactly the same book. I think there might be a few extra bits added at the back. They've added a few extra pieces, but it's essentially the same book. But part of me thought, I want that. I just want it because I like that game. And the fact that I saw that being advertised fired up a lot of enthusiasm for Monster of the Week because it's one of those games I do really like it. I think it's a really neat game. And we've talked about Powered by the Apocalypse. I don't know if I'm a massive fan of Powered by the Apocalypse, but I think it works really well in that particular game. Yes, you know? yeah. 
same version, just in a nicer, more durable format. I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, once a week. That's a great game, isn't it? Yeah, and, I'd and love to, promptly, promptly offered to run some at Games UK Games Expo. Brilliant. I'd love to play that because at the moment, as you know, I'm binge watching mm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've had to have a pause actually at the end of uh, season three, which is pretty uh, climactic. The end of uh, season three. Any of the fans of Buffy will tell you because you, you you didn't really watch it, did you, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? But no, it kind of passed me by at the time. But whilst I've been watching it, I really want to play Monster of the Week. It's mm. per- it's perfect fit for it, so I'm looking yeah, forward yeah. to playing that. Get it booked in. Get it booked in. Enjoy yeah. playing that. I've been totally and utterly obsessed with Planescape. So it's the topic of our book club this coming Sunday, this week. And the reason we chose it is because of Ben Riggs' book. So he was get some coverage in there. And it's a setting second edition AD&D that I'd heard of, but not really. It kind of glided past my brain, really, not giving it any attention. But I've started getting the books that are on print on demand on drive through. I do fall into these obsessions, but yeah. it's a really, really evocative setting and it fills me with ideas. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's something to do with the quality of the writing. So, you know, it's uh, the original campaign books by Dave uh, Zeb Cook and it's illustrated by Tony DeTerralizzi. And they're very distinctive, and it's got a very distinctive feel about it. And I really look, and I, and I too have uh, put something forward for UK Games Expo, but also for virtual grog meet. Yeah, I know, I, I know what you mean. You do have to, we do get these obsessions, don't we? I, I think it's a good thing. I think we're too hard on ourselves sometimes. We, we feel bad sometimes. Oh, oh, I'm obsessed with this, or I'm a terrible person in some way. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing. You've got enthusiasm for it. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a six-month obsession with a particular game because it yeah. uh, shows a level of enthusiasm, doesn't it? Worry about worry about it when you've no enthusiasm for anything. I've kind of, I fell out a little bit, as we were saying earlier, a bit with uh, fantasy and mm. settings, and this has got a little, you know, it's got a bit of a left field to it. And many people have said, "Oh, well, it doesn't really suit D and D," but I am going to play it with old school essentials because I don't fancy. Like fitting it into another game system, um, I want it was written for that system, so I want to see how it does play within it. Because I don't know, it just feels a bit inauthentic if you don't. Well, I think as well you've been stung by that before, haven't you? Where you 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 try and hack something and then realise you it doesn't quite work with the game that you're using, the system you're using, and therefore you have to modify that system to make yeah. it fit. And then feel like you're actually inventing a new game, which yes. becomes a lot of work. <laughs> it kind of catch you out. They can catch you out, sort of. You can start off going, "Oh well, I'm, I'll use this particular system for this particular setting. It'll be fine." And it's it's only later on when you start to get somewhere down the line that you start to think, "Oh, it's not quite going to work, is it? I'm going to have to change oh. this and change that." Before you know it, you've kind of Potentially, not always, but potentially got yourself in a bit of a mess. That's always the danger with doing something like that, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people have suggested like 13th Age because within oh, Planescapes, yeah. there are factions and 13th Age uses icons and matching them across. But I just think 
it's too much work into it. Just get old school essentials, nice and simple. Yeah, there's um, another problem though with 13 days, isn't there as well? What's that? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one of my least but co- controversial and end this episode with a controversial opinion judge blyler one of my least favorite systems but there we go oh there we go <laughs> discussion for a future podcast yeah we'll, we'll, we'll have to give that a speed rating i'll we'll give that a speed rating <laughs> well maybe, maybe we should uh, do you know what that would be interesting to do that because i've played the edge a couple of times you ran the galantha one and I've played it, and uh, there's nothing wrong with the games in themselves, but as a system, I found it, I, I, was, puzzled, I was puzzled by why people like it, put it that way. I was puzzled because I found it yeah. a bit. Well, let's put that. In a number of ways, but there we go. Maybe let's that is a future speed rating, yeah. Yeah, let's put that on the agenda uh, when we go to the pub next time, uh, and we'll have there. And I'm sure after a few pints my views on 13th Edge will be completely reasonable and rational. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until then, Blythe, until then, Blythe. See you later. Goodbye. DD Miles. Thanks to Ben for the interview. I really recommend Slaying the Dragon. It's a rip-roaring, blistering read of a great story. It was great to hear Daily Dwarf talking about Imagine Magazine. Hopefully we'll get some more insights from him over the coming episodes if you're interested in imagine over on the grub pod discord community wayne peters is leading a read-through issue by issue month by month to mark 40 years since it first appeared you'll find it in the grog tank channel it's a fascinating magazine wayne will also be appearing in part two of this episode adding another media favorite to the appendix g at the time of recording we're gearing up for another virtual grog meet there's quizzes, a fanzine book club, interviews and loads of games under offer over the weekend. Check out the page on the grognardfiles.com. As promised, I made some time in May to resurrect the zine project that was well underway before the world stopped turning in 2020. I'm aiming to get it out for Grogmeet in November. The best way to keep up to date with everything that's going on in Grogland is to join the Discord community contact me for an invite there's also a monthly newsletter for patrons we need to thank them for the continued support in keeping this thing going i'll be giving some shout outs to the newcomers next time and rolling them some gear from star frontiers thanks if you like what we do then pass it on if you want to participate in thunder phase where we answer medium fire questions, then please submit them before the middle of April 2023, because we're going to the pub. We're gone. Normally, the playout music is a clue to the next episode, but this time I'm cheekily using it to showcase Dirk Jr.'s latest composition. I'll put a link to Omari's EP in the show notes. Enjoy. Adios, amigos.